Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2020. If you would like to know more about the books and audio from Canon Press, please visit canonpress.com. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let us worship the triune God. Bless the Lord who forgives our sins. His mercy endures forever. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments, to the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. Lift up your hearts. We lift up to the Lord. O God, you are the great and glorious God. You sit enthroned above the heavens and you rule all things in your perfect wisdom. You send the earthquakes and fires, and so we praise you for earthquakes and fires. You send the hurricanes and tornadoes, and so we praise you for the hurricanes and tornadoes. You send the droughts and the blizzards, the monsoons and the famines. You raise up kings and prime ministers and presidents and parliaments and congresses and councils, and you depose them. You give life and breath and children and families and wealth and health to every living thing, and you take it back whenever you please, and so we praise you for it all. You have sent COVID-19 and the ensuing troubles, panic, confusion, disaster, and tyranny, and so we praise you for it too. You are working all things together according to your perfect counsel and might for the good of those who are called according to your purpose, to the praise of your glorious grace, that those things which can be shaken might crumble and fall, and so that those things which cannot be shaken may stand firm forever. And so we worship you now through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end, and amen. Amen. Christians are people of first principles. And we must be people of first principles, especially when the world around us is shaking, crumbling, and has gone mad. What do we mean by first principles? The Apostles' Creed is a wonderful statement of first principles. We believe in one God, and this God is both our Father and He is Almighty. He made all things, He rules all things, and He does so as our loving Father. And that love has been manifest and proven in the death and resurrection of His only begotten Son, the pouring out of His Spirit on the church, the fellowship of the saints, and our firm hope of resurrection glory. But these principles, these first principles, are rich with meaning and wisdom for us. For example, the fact that God is almighty means that all authority flows from him. All might flows from him. The fact that he rules as our faithful father informs how we understand his authority and all other authorities. And so he has established the authority of magistrates in the city gates, elders in the church, and fathers in the home, and they all answer to him, the Father Almighty. In moments of crisis or uncertainty, it is particularly important that every authority take responsibility. This is not a moment to sit back and watch other authorities. Each has a different jurisdiction, but part of the love that we owe God and our neighbor is bound up in each jurisdiction fulfilling its duties before God. Magistrates must guard their people and punish evildoers. Elders must proclaim the gospel, feed the sheep, and guard the flock. 
And husbands and fathers must love their wives and children and provide for them and teach them. While nearly half the world is currently shut down by civil magistrates, elders and husbands and fathers still retain their authority directly from the living God, the Father Almighty. The word is clear that we are to honor, pray for, and submit to magistrates in the Lord. But the word is equally clear that elders are to shepherd the flock of God and fathers are to love and provide for their families. There must not be any abdicating or relaxing of these duties or jurisdictions, especially in times of uncertainty or when there may be tensions between them. Love is keeping God's commandments, and when we have obeyed with simplicity of heart, we are free to live with a clean conscience before our God. And so as we prepare to confess our sins, please turn to When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. So as you're able, please kneel as we confess our sins together. Daniel 9 says, We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, and to all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces. Father, we confess that we are a nation of abdicators and blame shifters. Like our father Adam, we have made excuses and blamed others for our own failings, rather than taking responsibility and repenting joyfully. This includes the proclivity of the men in our land to abdicate their responsibilities to lead, protect, and provide leaving wives, daughters, sisters, and mothers insecure, unprotected, exploited, exasperated, and rebelliously desperate to take up the slack. Father, we acknowledge that it is a curse to be ruled by women and children. And we acknowledge that we have not only insisted on this curse, but we have celebrated it as enlightened, sophisticated, and wholly virtuous. Father, we further confess that all of this abdication has left us completely vulnerable to fear and anxiety and tyranny. We confess that we have sinned this way in our city gates, in our churches, and in our homes, and we confess that we deserve all the calamity and turmoil that we are getting. And so we cry out to you for mercy in the name of Jesus, for the sake of his precious blood. Deliver us from this curse, because Christ bore this curse on his cross. And we ask you to pour out your spirit that we might see our sin clearly, confess it honestly, and forsake it entirely. Father, we know that if we in the church give any kind of pass to sin in our own lives, this prayer will be ineffectual. And so we silently confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Isaiah 33 says, And the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. You are the people of God, and you have confessed your sins honestly and held nothing back. 
Therefore, you are completely clean in the sight of God. And so I declare to you, your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning is Isaiah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and then verses 10 through 14. These are the words of God. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not consider. Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evil evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your, sacrifice, your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had, enough of burnt, burnt, I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you for this word before us now. I pray your spirit would be present with us. I pray that we would consider these things. I pray your spirit would ensure that we take them all to heart. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, although I've been preaching for four decades or so, in the long ministry that I've been privileged to have, I've never before preached to five men and two cameras. <laughs> but we can trust the Lord to multiply it, maybe like the loaves and fishes. I'm not really speaking to cameras, I'm speaking to you, and if the word applies to you, the word applies to you. In a recent press conference, the president said that his desire was to have our country emerge from this crisis in a matter of weeks, not months, and that it was his desire for the churches of our country to be packed out on Easter. Now, this is a laudable desire on at least two levels, and we should support and applaud it, as I do. It, it was a good thing for him to say. It was a good thing for him to encourage us to think about, and we should think about it. We should, learn, we should yearn for it. But there's something more that still needs to be said about it. Packed churches are better than empty churches, but in themselves, they are not nearly enough. And our text indicates what the issue is. As Isaiah opens his magisterial book, he immediately confronts the great sinfulness of Israel. But even though they've been greatly compromised, it is a corrupt nation that has kept up the formalities. They've kept up appearances. So Isaiah begins by pulling back the curtain, stating clearly that they have badly strayed. They are a sinful nation. They are laden with iniquity, he says. They are a brood of evildoers. They are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord, and they've made the Holy One of Israel angry. They have turned away backward, verses 3 and 4. So hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom on the Potomac, verse 10. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah on the Hudson, verse 10. What is, it to me if the, what is it to me if the churches are packed out 
on Easter. Verse 11, who asked all of you people to come in here and trample my courts? Verse 12, your prayers, your offerings, your songs, your stupid songs are an abomination to me. Verse 13, and why? Because God is holy and cannot endure iniquity when combined with sacred assembly. God cannot endure iniquity that is combined with sacred assembly. Verse 13, our packed churches are a trouble to him. Verse 14, like so much smoke in the eyes. The prophet Amos speaks in much the same way. Away with the noise of your songs in Amos 5, 21 through 23. Get them out of my hearing. Who asked you to come around here and sing to me in that condition? Who asked you to, pre, who, to offer prayers and to offer songs and to offer sacrifices? Who asked you to combine your guilt and the guilt offering? Now, of course, there's a way of, combine, of combining guilt and guilt offering. There's a way to acknowledge guilt and and present a guilt offering, and the two are combined under the gracious hand of God, under the provision of God. But there's another way of combining guilt and a guilt offering, where you're trying to, uh, you're showboating. You're, you're saying, look at this, look at this animal I've sacrificed. Look at, look at how well I do it. Look at what I'm doing, and I'm going to reserve to myself the right to continue sinning. That kind of com- that kind of combination is a combination that God cannot stomach. God can't stand it. Now, why would people do this? Why would people do this? Well, this is, I think, a mystery of lawlessness. There is such a thing as being hell-bent. There is such a thing as being hell-bent. And when people are hell-bent in their sin, God could write his judgments in the sky in big block letters, and they would stare stubbornly down at their shoes rather than read such pure words. They just don't want to hear it. And he could, have, he could dispatch ten archangels to write his judgments in pure words in the sky so that everybody could see and people wouldn't want to look. In Revelation 16, 10 and 11, we have a description of this kind of stubbornness. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. Notice that. They gnawed their tongues for pain and, using those same tongues, blasphemed God. They gnawed their tongues because of the pain they were in and blasphemed God with those same tongues. That is a mystery, and it is is a mystery of lawlessness. Now, how does this apply to our text, and how does it it apply to our situation? The $2 trillion stimulus relief bill, and this is quite aside from whether that was a good idea, uh, was held up in part because the secularists wanted it to include relief for Planned Parenthood. $2 trillion relief package, because this is a crisis. They said this is, uh, people, are, people are dying. We've got to help an agency that is helping them to die. And California, which has all non-essential ser- services in lockdown, has seen fit to allow pot shops and abortion clinics to remain open as essential. 
Pot shops weren't even legal just a, few, just a few years ago. They weren't even legal, and now they are woven into the fabric of our economy. They are essential. Uh, so abortion clinics are essential. Pot shops are essential. You must stay at home unless your job is that essential one of dismembering babies. It is hard to comprehend what is more ghoulish, the fact that they do things like this or the fact that they don't think of it as ghoulish. That is, it's, it's just stupefying. You may believe that the danger that, you, and this, uh, I know that as I'm speaking to many of you, uh, you have different takes, you have different reactions to the consternation our country is in. You may believe that the danger that we're confronting is primarily that of the coronavirus. You may believe that the great danger we are confronting is the panicked official overreaction to the virus. Or you may believe, as I do, that it, is, that it is a combination of the two with a heavy emphasis on the latter. Nobody's making up the virus. Uh, we are not what uh, some people have called, we're not virus deniers. It's not, as not, it's not as though there is no virus. It is not as though there are, are no uh, people sick. And it's not as though there are no places where the sickness is, uh, is not a, a grave threat to the public. That, that's but there's no problem so great, but that you can't make it worse by making it worse by a fearful and timid and panicked reaction. But whatever you believe, if you believe the, the virus is the primary problem, or if you believe that the overreaction is the primary problem, or you believe that the primary problem is these two primary problems getting together and making it a bigger one, whatever you believe, whatever you believe the threat to be, to be you must also believe that it is a threat delivered to us personally by the hand of God. You cannot believe that this, this kind of threat is from God and that kind of threat is from the devil. Everything is from the hand of God. If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? If there is a calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? Amos 3.6. If there's a calamity, then, then the Lord did it. If there's a calamity, and it doesn't matter if the calamity is a coronavirus calamity, or if it's a governmental officious overreaction calamity, or if it's a combination, whatever the, whatever the calamity is, it is a calamity that is delivered to us personally with our name and address on the package from the God of heaven. He is the one who has delivered this package to us, and he's delivered it to us personally. Now, my question is whether we're going to open the package and find out what's in it. I'm not, we're not talking about the trouble, the trouble that the news is telling us about. I'm, I'm asking Christians to open the package and find out what's in it. And in order to find out what's in the package, you have to actually open up your heart and find out what's in there. So let's suppose that God lifts his hand from us in his great mercy. Let's suppose that God, in his great mercy, lifts his hand from us. And that by mid-May, things have returned to normal. Okay, wouldn't that be nice? Mid-May, sun comes out, birds are chirping, grass is green, everything's back to normal. In mid-May, we will be just days away from June, designated as Pride Month. Pride Month. A time of LGBTQ celebrations. Now, are we going to go back? To, is that what we mean by back to normal? Is that what we mean by everything's, everything's clear now, back to normal, back to Pride Month? 
Back to mandatory Pride Month, back to Christians keeping their heads down, trying to evade the authorities in their big corporations so they don't get hammered or fired or laid off or in trouble with HR because they are insufficiently insufficiently celebrating. Wouldn't it be better to call it Dog Returning to its Vomit Month? Isn't that what it is? Dog Returning to its Vomit Month. Really? Seriously? Do such rebels think that a respite would not be a mercy of God? They would much rather think of a much simpler explanation. It's actually a simplistic explanation. They think, they think that perhaps God is running out of ammunition. This is like Pharaoh thinking, when the plague of frogs was removed, that Jehovah had somehow run out of frogs. Exodus eight fifteen. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart, and hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. Now, it's true that the Lord did not repeat the frogs. He didn't repeat the frogs. But this was not because he was out of them. It was because he intended to use the rest of his arsenal. He had a whole battery of things lined up. And it is simply astonishing. Remember again what I said about the mystery of lawlessness. Pharaoh hardened his heart. The frogs came. He realized, okay, you can go sacrifice. And then the frogs went away and he hardened his heart. The frogs are gone. He hardened his heart again. So don't, don't uh, put it past the unbelieving heart to say, God, please deliver us. God, please, 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 please. Uh, we don't want to die from the coronavirus. So we don't want my, I don't want to lose my business. I don't, 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 don't. And then just a few weeks, the sun comes out and back to Pride Month. All right, back to the way it was. That is insanity. That's moral insanity. That's spiritual insanity. It is insane. Now, this whole thing that we're dealing with is a God quake. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, keep your eyes on what he is doing, not on what our grand poobahs think they are doing. Keep your eyes on what God is doing in all this. And above all, do not look at what your own fearful heart is doing. All right. Now, if you, I said earlier, when you open up the package, you need to open up the package, and you open up the package by looking in your own heart. When you open up your own heart and look in there, that's not the gift. That's not the present. That's not what's God, that's what God wants you to get rid of. That fear, that timidity, that concern, that that idolatry of all things normal, the idolatry of the state, all of all of the things. You've got you've got to surrender them. What is God doing? In Hebrews chapter 12, it says this, And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving, <coughs> therefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire." What's happening here is God is shaking everything. He is shaking everything so that we would stop having faith in things that are so shakable. We need to stop having faith in the things that we once thought were so secure. God is shaking everything so that we might trust in him. He is the, he is the consuming fire. He, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. We're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. As we're worshiping God here now in this service, this is the kingdom that cannot be touched, cannot be moved, cannot be shaken. This is what we're receiving. All the things outside that we like to think of as stable and ordinary and normal, 
Those things are, look, look, they're all shaking. So what, we, what should we be doing? What should our prayers be like? We need to be asking God to do what it takes. Moral stubbornness is a great mystery. Moral stubbornness is a great mystery. When the United States obliterated Hiroshima on August 6th, 1945, with an atomic bomb, it is not often remarked that this one devastating bomb was not sufficient to get the Japanese to surrender. One of their cities was essentially vaporized, and that didn't do it. One of their cities was vaporized, and that didn't do it. That had to wait for the obliteration of another city, Nagasaki, three days later. They had three days to think about it. Three days to think about it. Then a second city was destroyed, and then some days after that, the, the surrender was conducted. Taking this simply as an illustration, what should your prayer in this extraordinary time be? Your, your prayer should be that God would do what it takes to get us to surrender to him. What God would, God would you, whatever it is, don't, don't pray that God would let up. Don't pray that God would lighten up. Pray that God would press through and do what it takes to get us to sign the surrender papers. We don't want God to bomb just one city and then leave us to our corruptions. In Exodus 15, God says this, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and wilt give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee, which I have brought upon the Egyptians. For I am the Lord that healeth thee. Notice that phrase, none of these diseases. None of these diseases. Earlier in this chapter from Exodus, the people of Israel had just been celebrating their deliverance from Egypt in the great Red Sea miracle. Three days later, they came to the waters of Merah, which were bitter and undrinkable. Moses made the water sweet by throwing a particular tree into the water, and then he made a statute or an ordinance for them, whereby it's, he's, it says he tested them. All right, this was a test for Israel. And then he gave them the words of our text, which begin with a series of conditionals. If they diligently hearkened to the voice of God, if they did what was right in his sight, if they paid close attention to his commandments and obeyed his statutes, then, then what? Think about this. Diligently hearkened, did what was right, paid close, close attention, and obeyed his statutes. That is not a description of people who keep the abortion clinics and the pot shops open. That is not it. If they diligently hearkened, if they did what was right, if they paid close attention and obeyed his statutes, then the diseases of Egypt, which were commonplace enough there to be called by that name, you, you remember all those diseases in Egypt? They would not be visited upon Israel. We see here that God's governance of the world is personal. His governance of the world is personal. This is not a big machine grinding away. We are not materialists. God is looking down on our country. It's not, it's not like epidemiologists are, have maps of the country and they are noticing where the, the outbreaks of the virus are and God doesn't know that. Do you think God doesn't know that New York City is heavily afflicted? Do you think God doesn't know that California is hit heavily? That God doesn't know that Washington State is... No, of course. And, and do you think God's just sort of randomly, like he's throwing darts at a dartboard? No, God governs the world personally. These things are entirely in his hand. 
The world is not governed by deaf, dumb, and blind microbes. Our problem in all of this is that we, we Americans, have offended God. We Americans have offended God. That's it. That's the bottom line. We have offended God. He, in Psalm 91, it says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That's verse 1. Then down in verse 10, There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. In this text from Psalm 91, we see that the Almighty casts a shadow. And in that shadow, in that shadow is a secret place, a hiding place. The person who resorts there is one who must dwell there. He must abide there. And the shadow that is cast there is cast by the great rock, who is Christ. In that resting place, the plague of self-sufficiency and pride will not come near you. That is the central plague. That's the, that's the heart plague. That's the spiritual plague. That's the thing that you're going to be protected. Everybody who comes to Christ, absolutely everyone who is, who surrenders to Christ is delivered from that plague. But we're not, we're not simply saying that there's deliverance in some mystical, invisible, spiritual realm and that only. No, God, uh, God protects his people in real time. God protects his people in history. He doesn't do it like he's a vending machine, but he does do it. But he doesn't do it for people who ignore his word. He doesn't do it for people who are not trusting him, who are not obeying, who are not diligently hearkening, and who simply want the pain to go away so they can go back to the old way of forgetting about him. That's not how it works. So, if this Easter simply sees our churches packed with Americans, that by itself would be the greatest disaster out of this long series of disasters. If we simply had numbers in the churches, if we simply had a lot of trampling of courts, if we simply had a lot of noise from a lot of songs, if we simply had a lot of voices lifted up to God, but all of our hearts, with their lips they approach me, but their hearts are far from me, if that's all we do, and people go to church for the same, they go to church because it's nice to get out. After a month cooped up, it's nice to get out. They're going to church for the same reason they're going to Costco. They're going to church because the drive is going to be nice. And so it's all packed out, but their, their lips approach God, but their hearts are far from him. If that is the case, then, then we, we're simply waiting for the second bomb. If that's, what, if that's the case, we're simply waiting for Nagasaki. If that's the case, we're waiting for the next wave. Because God's people are praying that God would do what it takes. God, would you please do whatever it takes? If breaking the United States of America in her pride and insolence, the way she has been, if, it's, if it takes that to get rid of homosexual marriage, same-sex mirage, then do it. Please do it. If it takes that to get rid of the abortion carnage, the crimson carnage, then Lord, we beseech you, please do it. I would rather live in a poor, broken country that didn't kill babies than in a rich and insolent one that does. So we, we should want the churches to be filled with worshipers, but we should long to see the churches packed out with repentant Americans. That's the issue. Do we have any notion of repentance? Do we have any notion of repentance? We have our leaders oscillating between two extremes. Our leaders say, 
we're all going to die, we're all going to die, we're all going to die, and they're timid and fearful and afraid and cowardly and crawling under the table. That's one, that's one way to be craven and, and sinful. That's just simply wrong. And then you have another type of leader who says, uh, Americans have never been kept down for long. We're, we're great. We're, we're going to figure, uh, figure out a way. We can test faster than Italians. And, you know, <laughs> that, that kind of foolishness. That, no. What we need to be is repentant Americans. Repentant Americans. When we look at the corruption centers called our state capitals, not to mention our national capital, the problem is not that these are the people representing us. The problem is that they represent us well. That's the problem. They represent us well. And, and we need to ponder this deeply. And that should be part of our repentance. And so, if the Lord lifts his hand from us, if the Lord lifts his hand from us, then our behavior after that point, unlike Pharaoh, must be different. It must be different. But it's only going to be different if we look to Christ. It's only going to be different if we see Christ in the interim. If we use this time for reflection and meditation and prayer and repentance at the core issues, repentance at the central issues, it's only going to be uh, different after the fact if it's different in the middle, if it's different now. And so here is the message. Here's the thing that you must take to heart. Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ risen, Christ ascended. He is at the right hand of the Father now, and he is displeased with how we've been conducting our affairs. He is shaking us. And it's, so far, it's just a modest little shake. So far, it's not a terrifying shake. So, so far, we don't have people, we don't have kings crying out for the, for the mountains to fall on them. We're not at that level yet. But we should want to be at that level rather than to continue to offend the Lord our God. So the gospel is Christ crucified, Christ buried, Christ resurrected, and Christ ascended. Look to him, call out to him, trust in him, and put things right with him. Our Father in God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how you love your people. We thank you for how you encourage us in hard times. I pray that these words would, would be an encouragement to everyone who trusts in you truly. I pray that you would bring to, to true salvation those who thought they were Christians but were not. And I pray that non-believers afar off would be brought near as well. Father, we, we lift all this up to you. We pray that you would use this time to soften our hearts. And again, Father, we ask that you would do what it takes. Father, as we do this, we would lift up to you the words that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father God, whenever we face trials, we are easily tempted to allow our thoughts of you to be shaped more by our feelings and what we're experiencing than by your word. You have been nothing but kind to us, your covenant people, and you have lavished blessings without number upon us. Even our present trial you have ordained for our good. So rather than recoiling from you, we respond to your graciousness by gladly giving our tithes and offerings. After all, you unceasingly give unto us, and so we imitate you now by giving back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the charge is this, turn to God. He calls us in the word preached to turn unto him. He calls us in the sacraments to abide in him and partake of him, and so turn to him to receive his grace. He calls us in his word as we read it day by day to, fa to fear not the face 
of man, but to trust in him alone. He calls us, he calls to us in the hard providence of a plague to turn to him. Remember, God's grace is found by those whom he delights to humble. But the proud and obstinate and conceited who refuse to turn to God will find something far worse than a virus or economic hardship in the end. So turn to God and find in him the fount of all blessing. And by turning to him alone, you will be able to rejoice in this present hardship. Not only that, but when you keep your eyes on him by faith, you will see these present sufferings as the very means of his humbling you. But don't forget, our Lord humbles us so that he might lift us up into unspeakable glory and joy. So hear now the benediction of God our Father. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon and remain with you always. And amen.